Coming up today, exam chaos, how your boss is spying on you, and the great QR code revival. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me today are Amit Kawala. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hi. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Europe sweltered under an unusually long and intense heatwave, with the UK recording temperatures of 34 degrees Celsius or above, for six consecutive days for the first time since 1961. Scientists have warned that the climate crisis will continue to make extreme weather events such as this more likely and more severe. Britain has entered the deepest recession since records began this week as official figures show the economy shrank by more than any other major nation during the coronavirus outbreak in the three months to June. UK GDP fell by 20.4% in the second quarter of 2020, more than double the fall seen in the US. This was also the week when one of the biggest radio telescopes in the world got damaged in a tropical storm. The Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico was damaged when a cable snapped and smashed through the dish, leaving a gash about 30 metres long. Opened in 1963, you might recognise the telescope from the James Bond film Goldeneye. And finally, this was the week when England began trials of a new coronavirus contact tracing app after the failure of the previous effort. The new app is based on Google and Apple's system, which the government had initially rejected in favour of building its own. Uh, Its own app cost £12 million and was swiftly abandoned and replaced with this one. This new effort will be trialled on the Isle of Wight and with healthcare workers and also enables users to scan QR codes when they arrive at venues. Before we continue, uh, we should probably apologise. If you're able to hear uh, a low sort of humming, droning noise in the background, I think everyone's laptops are pretty much about to burst into flames. I know mine is. Uh, So if if that is coming through on the recording, it's just because it's really really hot but we'll uh, we'll try our best to uh, plow on regardless what did you learn this week amit so i have a question a question um so the question is which animal or creature is nature's best hunter so we're talking here about uh you know per their success rate so if for every animal they try and catch how many do they get and which which animal would rank best uh, uh you know rank the top of that list can I say, like, scorpion? Just standard scorpion? Spider. Uh, that's incorrect. Incorrect. Natasha? Uh, can I say grasshopper mouse? Uh, no, although three very left-field answers, I've got to say. I don't have the statistics for any of those creatures to hand. Um, the uh, the answer might be surprising. So of, of the kind of traditional hunting animals that you might expect, the cheetah has the highest, so that's 58%. Then lion. Uh, lion gets only a quarter of its intended kills hit the mark. Uh a wolf only captures 14% of the animals that it stalks. Uh, but the deadliest, deadliest killer of all is actually the dragonfly. So according to a 2012 study from researchers at Harvard University, the dragonfly manages to catch an astounding 95% of its prey. Wow. Keeping up the strong tradition of animal-based facts on the Wired podcast. What did you learn this week, Vicky? I've got a question for you as well. I have to admit, it's a, it's a little bit of a subjective fact because maybe you can't like really measure it objectively but what is generally considered to be the hardest plant in the world to grow 
I've got a Chinese money plant on my desk, which is looking a bit sad, but it's probably not that, is it? It's it's not a Chinese money plant, no. In fact, I think they're they're, they're quite easy, James. Uh, it's hot. I'll blame the heat. Is it is an it... avocado? <laughs> it's not an avocado. Um, I do actually. I'm trying to to follow a thing I saw on the internet and grow an avocado from an avocado stone out of an avocado I just ate. But I don't know if it's one of those internet sort of things that doesn't actually work. So I'll let you know in a few months' time whether I have an avocado plant. <laughs> uh, is it saffron? That would be my guess. No, good guess because it's really valuable, isn't it? So um, that would, would seem a good guess. But you're along the right lines, actually, Amit, because it is a, um, I should say, really the hardest plant in the world to grow commercially. And it is a valuable food stuff. It's wasabi. And that's considered particularly difficult to grow because of the very specific conditions that you need to grow the plant. So actually, it might it, it's quite possible that none of us have ever actually eaten real wasabi because a lot of the stuff that you get that, you know, is made to look like wasabi is actually a kind of mix of horseradish and mustard and food colouring to look like the green of wasabi because actual wasabi is difficult to grow and it's really expensive. Um, and the reason for that is that you have to grow it in water, but not just underwater you need it sort of in a in a riverbed often with flowing water constantly going over it it's very particular about conditions about nutrients it's quite susceptible to disease um so it's really quite difficult to grow at scale very good natasha what did you learn this week well, i didn't learn a question um so i don't have any trickery tr- tr- <laughs> in my fact um but i did learn something very quickly before this uh, podcast which is that canadians say sorry so much that a law was passed in 2009 declaring that an apology cannot be used as evidence of admission to guilt so you can imagine like uh, you've been accused of murder you're canadian and you go so sorry game over <laughs> introduce introduce this law <laughs> saying like no no and james i'm not sure if in your household the word sorry is the easiest word uh, yeah canadian, so for, yeah for those that don't know my partner is canadian um there is a lot of apologizing um apologizing for apologizing uh, mm-hmm. a canadian classic um that all of all of my partner's family um are guilty of is uh, apologizing when you step on their feet uh, for making your footsteps uh, uncomfortable. Uh, an em- eminently polite bunch. Uh, speaking of eminently polite, uh, just south of the Canadian border, Donald Trump um, has said that he wants to change the definition of a shower head so that he can better wash his luscious locks. So I learned this week that there's actually a law in the United States that defines what a shower head is, and it um, stipulates that they may not produce more than 9.5 litres of water per minute. Now, for Donald Trump, who is known for his um, quaffed locks, he says he can't get them looking perfect enough and is persuaded, this is ridiculous, he's persuaded the Department of Energy to propose changing that limit to apply to each nozzle rather than the overall fixture. So you go from 9.5 litres to two, three times that amount. Um, One energy conservation group put it in a news story I was reading that the amount of water wouldn't just give you a good wash, it would probably also flood your house and generally be a bit of an environmental disaster. It is insane. Uh, What's not insane is a a new podcast from our colleagues at Wired in the US, seamlessly done. Uh, We wanted to let you know about a new podcast from the team at Wired.com. They're launching a new podcast. Um, It's been out for four editions now. It's called Get Wired. Just like the Wired UK podcast, it's all about the news from tomorrow. 
delivered to you today. You can expect trustworthy journalism informed by decades of real understanding of technology. The latest episode has an interview with Bill Gates talking about conspiracy theories and coronavirus vaccines, and it's very, very good indeed. New episodes of Get Wired drop every Monday. Listen and subscribe to Get Wired wherever you get your podcasts, and please do keep subscribing to the Wired UK podcast as well, because you can never have too much Wired in your life. Amit, a very UK-focused story this week, but one that we feel has global relevance. It's about exam results, but it's about discrimination too. That's right. Who needs Bill Gates when you've got me? Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) as you might be aware, uh, if you live in the UK, it's been uh, kind of top of the headlines uh, today and for much of this week. Uh, Thursday, the day we're recording, is A-level results day when thousands of 17 and 18-year-olds are getting their exam results and finding out whether they're kind of they've got their university places and, and made the grades that they needed to, to secure those places um so normally results day kind of has you know the sort of time-worn rhythm there's like the same thing kind of pop every every year so you kind of get local paper pictures of people holding envelopes and jumping in the air and then people on twitter kind of saying that you know exam results don't matter and other people saying that the exams have gotten far too easy but this year it's obviously been very different so Ordinarily, exams would have been set in kind of May, June time, but they were cancelled because of the pandemic uh, and replaced with kind of teacher assessments and algorithms, this new kind of last minute system that's been chucked together to try and make sure everyone still gets a grade. Uh, And it's basically just created chaos that is, uh, as you might predict, affecting some groups more than others. Did anyone place a bet on who the first normally male celebrity on Twitter would be to point out that they didn't do very well in their exams? No, there are there are a few. So it's usually usually Jeremy Clarkson uh, chimes in. Jake Humphrey, the BT Sport presenter, is uh, often there or thereabouts. Uh, yeah. Clarkson Clarkson was at it again uh, this year, pointing out that um, he got I think two two season two U's um, and is now building a giant home in the Cotswolds with a very nice view over the countryside. Oh. <laughs> uh, but enough of Jeremy Clarkson. What's <laughs> happened, Amit? Why is it such chaos? Um, so. Yeah, so basically the system is kind of flawed, like fundamentally flawed, and it kind of was it was always going to it was always going to be chaos. From the moment they cancelled the exams, it was always kind of going to be a bit of a problem. So the system, uh, as it stands, works like this: so teachers um, submitted a predicted grade for each of their students, and then also a ranked list of all the students in their class in order of their uh, predicted kind of achievement. Um, so then to prevent grade inflation where teachers you know might rank their own students more highly rather than just giving these grades to the students directly the grades were adjusted by Ofqual which is the qualifications authority in England um the figures are kind of been kind of coming out uh, over the course of today as we're recording but initial results suggest that about 40% of the results have been downgraded so that's about 280,000 results which were changed by one or more uh, one or more levels um, that's the results um, as in per subject rather than 280,000 people. So uh, people tend to do three or four A-levels. Um, that means that a lot of people haven't made their offers, haven't got the results they were expecting, haven't got into the universities they were kind of banking on. And obviously, you know, through no fault of their own, may have got a grade that's one or two or three levels below what they were expecting or what they would have got if they'd been able to sit the exam. There's a bunch of like really heartbreaking stories kind of going around on social media and people are really, really angry about this. And so... In that theory, I mean, if everyone's um, grades have been downgraded at the same time, obviously it sucks, but universities are going to factor that in um, if people want to move on, right? You'd assume that they would have that sort of benchmark and just lower it a little bit to adapt to that sort of 40% gap that's happening. But, I mean, is, is it all the same for everyone, though? Is it, is it happening across the country so that universities can do that in a fair way? Yeah, I think if it was, if it was kind of 
evenly spread. The, 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 if the misfortune was evenly, evenly spread, I think it would be slightly more understandable. But actually, it's, you know, it's not. Uh, even when the system was first announced a few months ago, people were warning that it would hit poorer students and students from ethnic minorities the hardest. And that seems to have been exactly what's happened. So uh, if you're an ethnic minority student from a poorer background, there's this potential kind of triple, triple whammy uh, that you could be hit with. So firstly, um, teacher assessments themselves are, you know, biased. So uh, exam results are, are marked anonymously. Uh, teacher assessments obviously aren't. The teacher knows you. And uh, while that may mean in some cases they're more likely to mark you up, uh, research suggests that actually for non-white students, teachers sometimes assess them uh, or predict them to do worse than they actually end up doing. So a 2009 study into predictions and results in key stage two English, so that's uh, the exams you take around 10 or 11, uh, that found that Pakistani peoples were 62.9% more likely than white peoples to be predicted a lower score than they actually achieved. So although you know these students' level of English was the same, the, the teachers thought that the Pakistani students wouldn't do as well as the white students. Um, we also see an upward spike in results for boys from black and Caribbean backgrounds at age 16, um, which corresponds to the first time in their school careers that they're actually assessed anonymously. Uh, and then so when you see this kind of late spike in, 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 in you know, uh, performance in, in exams at that point. Um, so that's part of the problem. So teacher assessments uh, could be subject to unconscious bias. Um, the second problem is that because of the um, statistical modelling uh, that's been put in place because of the coronavirus, um, a bright pupil in a poorly performing school may see their grades get downgraded because of last year's results at that school. So nothing to do with their performance, nothing to do with how hard they've worked. Um, so this is what happened in Scotland, where children from poorer backgrounds were twice as likely to have their results downgraded as those from richer areas. Uh, it looks like the same things happened in England as well. So private schools were less likely to be downgraded than any other type of school, according to some data that's just come out this morning. So what can students do if they think that they've been unfairly downgraded, that they really you know, should have got a higher grade, can they appeal somewhere? Yeah, so there is an appeals process, but this, this is the third thing, the third aspect that, that makes it unfair. So uh, in Scotland, the, the individual pupils get to appeal and decide whether or not they're going to appeal, but in England, it's up to the school, not the people. Um, so there will be huge differences in which schools decide to appeal, which schools are able to appeal. It's not free. You have to pay a fee. Uh, you know, certain schools will be more likely to fight for their, their students. You know, again, if you're, if you're that bright people in a poorly performing school, you might be the only person in that school who has a, a university place riding on this. The school might decide actually it's not worth their while to do all the admin that it's going to take them and, 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 you know, the kind of faff of appealing, particularly when teachers are on holiday at the moment. Whereas, you know, in a private school where parents have paid, you know, large fees to to get their children into the right universities, they're definitely going to be more vocal and more adamant that, you know, they're going to appeal and they're going to get their results changed and other people aren't. How can we fix it then? Um, we've got an almighty mess. The government surely saw this coming. We've been in lockdown for months. Schools have been closed for months. It's been very obvious that students aren't going to be sitting these exams. And it felt like even as this day approached at the beginning of the week, they were still making things up as they went along and coming up with new policies. Universities have had access to, to these re these predicted results for, for some time so they could see the problem. Why can't they fix it? Um, c cynically, uh, it's because the, the children of MPs and the, the, the children of MPs' friends tend to go to schools where uh, that won't have been badly affected by this. That's one one aspect. Um, the other, so what we've seen in Scotland is quite an instructive lesson. So in Scotland, uh, results came out a week ago. In Scotland, they've basically been going through the same process, uh, but just a week ahead. 
Uh, so what happened there was that the modelling came out, the results came out, everyone, loads of people got downgraded, everyone was furious, and then the politicians got involved. Uh, so Nicola Sturgeon basically said, OK, we're not going to do this statistical modelling and we're going to go back to relying on teacher assessment. Um, in England, uh, the Department of Education has introduced what it's calling a triple lock. So students can appeal uh, and they've been guaranteed that their grade won't be lower than their assessment or their mock exam or they can do a reset in the autumn. Um, but as it's been pointed out by lots of people, uh, lots of commentators, mock exams take place in vastly different circumstances in different schools. There's no kind of centralised database of mock results that they can just rely on to kind of, um, you know, do take these results from. You know, some people won't have done their mocks until after lockdown started, so they could have done them at home with, you know, access to books and computers. Uh, sometimes teachers will... Uh, if a teacher thinks that you are a lazy student but gifted, they might give you an artificially low grade in the mock exam in an attempt to kind of scare you into working hard for the rest of the year. Um, so the government hasn't announced exactly how it's going to take mocks into account. It says it's going to announce it next week. Uh, obviously, this, this announcement about mocks being taken into account was only made on Tuesday, and it just, you know, it, it reeks of kind of last-minute panic and, and ill-thought-through sort of um, policies. Um, to be honest, like... From the moment they decided to cancel exams, I think that there was always going to be a mess. Someone was always going to be uh, upset. And, and one of the teachers I spoke to argues that we shouldn't have cancelled exams so hastily and we should have tried to have done them later in the year or just postponed them. They could have been done, he says, in June or July um, with kind of social distancing in place. Um, so the teachers I spoke to, uh, and I think I agree as well, think that we'll essentially eventually see these kind of grades being overturned or changed en masse and we'll effectively see a situation where students almost get to pick their own grade from within a range you know defined by their teacher assessment and their um mock exams and they eventually get to select you know and we probably will see kind of grade inflation compared to previous years which might be a bit unfair but you know as soon as politicians get involved that's that's the only way out really because you know uh Nicola Sturgeon will have been well aware that the kind of 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds of today uh, are the voters of tomorrow, right? And, you know, you, you can't uh, screw up a whole generation's um, exam results without necessarily feeling some of the consequences. So there's massive pressure on politicians to essentially just cave in and, and give these people the results they want and the results they need. Um, the problem is that will still be too late for a lot of people. You know, uh, already universities are turning away applicants uh, who haven't made the grades uh, because they're massively oversubscribed now. Universities normally give out way more offers than they have places because they know that not everyone's going to make the, the grades to match those offers. Um, and so, you know, soon they're going to have little choice to, to turn those people away. Even if you appeal and eventually get the, the grades that you need, they might be like, well, sorry, we're already full because so many people got got grades anyway. So, yeah, big, big problems and a huge mess. What you've described, though, is, is a massive just horrible system basically you've got the bias you've got children across disparate schools and performance issues and you know the, the fact that a lot of them are, are being put in these mock situations that they shouldn't be in that are affecting their final grades it, this this seems like all these problems were there and coronavirus just then came along and, and made it worse right i mean it's, it's not it's not necessarily coronavirus that's made this a huge issue it's, it's an issue that was already there right yeah, exactly. So the crisis has kind of exposed these deep flaws in our whole model, you know, a whole teaching model assessment and university system. So, um, you know, Ofqual, what Ofqual has been doing is been using kind of aggregate data about school performance to, you know, counteract grade inflation, when arguably what they should have been doing this whole time is using that data to, to counteract hidden bias and counteract some of the kind of structural inequalities that we, we see. So, you know, it, 
people have been saying, okay, well, maybe universities could keep, be more lenient with their kind of offers and, and, and maybe if you gave the universities access to the data and they could see which people's had been downgraded and why and, you know, what their original teacher assessment was, what their mock result was, they could give, they could use that information to kind of make better assessments about who to give places to. Um, and, you know, arguably they should be doing that more often anyway. So they, you know, even without COVID, they should be making contextual offers that take into account the fact that it is so much easier to get good grades from people from certain social economic backgrounds. You know, if you go to a, a private school, it's much, you, you, you just like the fact is you just have to work much less hard in order to get the same results as someone who maybe goes to a state school or has to, you know, work a part time job in order to kind of help out with the bills while they're doing their studies. So, you know, this is a, a nightmare. It's a farce, this uh, exam season, but it just exposed some of the kind of deeper flaws and, and the real problem with exams more generally and, and the kind of inequalities that exist, you know, every year, regardless of coronavirus. Please do get in touch to let us know how you or someone in your family has been affected by uh, this mess that we've gone through in England and Scotland this week. Podcast.wired.co.uk. Have your grades been downgraded? Have you missed out on a university place or has one of your children or, or another relative missed out on an opportunity that they hope to have open to them? What impact is it having on your lives and what's a good solution to this problem? How can we come up with a a better way forward now that everyone is acutely aware of how broken this system is podcast at wired.co.uk our second story this week is also related to the pandemic um we're all sitting sweating at home uh, our boss can't see what we're up to we're in the office he might be looking at us sweating in the office but they can't do that now natasha except in some workplaces they kind of can Yes, and I'm sure we're not the exception. If um, Greg decided now is the moment to spy, he could probably do that um, if he figured out how. So I think the, the, with this story, I mean, we, we've got to get one thing straight, which is that spying on employees is absolutely not anything new. So factory bosses used to have their office spaces sort of high up overlooking the factory floor so they could keep an eye on employees and make sure they were being productive. In most retail stores, bosses are still using time cards to dock people's pay for being slow at clocking in and out of shifts. More recently, companies like Barclays or the Daily Telegraph faced employee backlash for installing heat sensors on desks to detect when people were there or not. Amazon's always raised eyebrows with its policy of forcing employees to walk through airport-style scanners on their breaks to make sure they're not stealing products from fulfillment centers. But now that everyone that can work from home is still working from home, we've let our bosses into our living rooms. Um, since, Since this work from home trend has flourished, so too has employee monitoring software, which is installed company computers to keep an eye on what you're doing at all times so this all sounds quite creepy um put us out around misery natasha what 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 can our boss actually see <laughs> yes yeah, it's always been really quite easy for companies to track people when they use uh, software such as gchat or slack i don't think anyone here assumes that when you share um, information with employees on sort of company provided software that they're not going to be able to see what you have said none of that is private in case anyone had any doubt about that um, but but now companies have started 
trying to find ways to control what you're doing while you're working from home and to make sure that you're being productive. So these new programs um, have started emerging and, and some of them are kind of cloaked um, into being productivity software, uh, but they're not really. So things, names like Time Doctor, Active Track, Terramind and Staff Cop, which is a super dystopian sounding app, have all seen huge upticks in demand. Now, to give you an idea as to what these look like, if you went on any of those websites, you'll you'll see that um, bosses can basically use this to manage their employees, not just by seeing what they're doing while they're interacting with each other, but also being able to take screenshots and recording their activity to send to them. So let's imagine I'm on a Zoom call for work and I'm in the background working on something else. My boss, if they're using something like Staff Cop, could send me a screenshot of my own screen telling me, Natasha, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing because you should be paying attention to this all-hands meeting. So there's some really kind of sinister things that people can do and tracking and recording um, it is now becoming easier than ever um, people are using their laptops and their com computers from work to do home stuff at the same time you know the, the barriers between work and home have completely blurred and it, it can be hugely devastating for someone to lose their job when they happen to be watching Netflix on their lunch break on their computer because someone has been able to screenshot it to give you an idea. So um, all, all these things are happening at the moment. There's a lot of trend towards installing these things on people's computers, whether they like them or not. And remote teams are basically being watched through their webcams uh, via on-stream services like Sneak. So again, you can be having customer calls, client calls, and you might not be realising that there's someone else that can watch you while you're working so it's sort of the, the equivalent of a boss standing over your desk behind your shoulder just sort of looking at you um, and at your every move so it's super creepy it's 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 also not obvious that it's going on so in in this office free world bosses can clan, clandestinely scan screenshots login times and keystrokes at will to make sure that people stay productive and they are focused so super creepy stuff that's very curious. It's really um, like, I mean, I, I don't think we're in a situation where we're being kind of monitored by our bosses, but uh, I, I also I find it really difficult to imagine, I don't know, agreeing to, to kind of a webcam being switched on and get this my will. Uh, but, you know, for people that are in a situation where, you know, staff cop is, is monitoring their activities, what can they do about it? How are they fighting back? Yeah, so, so worth noting that some people don't know that they're being monitored. So because you're using a company uh, laptop or a company computer, they own the software that's on that computer and they own the actual computer itself. So they're, they're not really under any obligation to tell you that they're monitoring you as long as it's during your office hours. So that's one thing. So you might never even notice that someone is watching you um, or that someone is knowing what you're doing until there comes a time when they review your performance and they tell you that you've been slacking off. So that, that there is that to factor in but but there are people that are fighting back so people started clocking that this is what's going on and their solutions range from the sublime to the completely ridiculous so although it's hard to evade so you can't really switch off the surveillance software without someone figuring out what you've been doing um people are downloading virtual machines so this means that you can basically ring fence all these offending programs that are surveilling every single move that you make and your and their work from the rest of the computer so there was one programmer that spoke to us for this piece who said that if you have a hefty enough pc you can work in one window and slack off in another and it looks like you're working and, and that nothing else is going on and the programs will just not detect what you're doing so other people that aren't necessarily gamers um, or 
you're trying to slack off. Also downloading this thing called Presence Scheduler, which can set Slack statuses as permanently active. And this doubled in sales and traffic in the first two months of lockdown. This is until Slack clamped down and closed the coding loophole. So the developer of this app, Wesley Henshaw, believes that his site caused the policy changes to happen in Slack. But he says there was a further spike in interest once he emailed users that it had adapted to the changes. I'm going to echo the sounds like creepy stuff line that, that everyone else has trotted out. It is exceedingly creepy stuff, but there's a line here, right? That there, there is some form of monitoring that won't be legal. And you've got the related problem. If you're a company that does this, you can be fairly sure that when employees do find out, and they will find out because you'll start sending them screenshots of their computer and they'll <laughs> tweak to it, there'll be a backlash. Yeah, there is there is definitely that. And I think there are a lot of uh, company cultures that have always been quite bad. So especially in sort of professional services, people are expected to work all of the time um, and they're expected to work antisocial hours. And so those kinds of, sort of slight tweaks that people are doing to their computers are just a, a kind of an indicator of how bad uh, their relationship is with their bosses that they can't sit down and say, oh, actually, I think... I shouldn't be working 12, 13, 15 hours a day because that's not healthy and that's not normal. So to the question, is it legal? I mean, according to the Information Commissioner's Office, employers must tell employees if they're being monitored and why. It's a more accepted practice in the corporate world. So brokers who are handling sensitive data, lawyers who are self-reporting billable hours via time-tracking software, all of that has existed from, for, for a long time and it's not, gonna, it's not gone away since the crisis. Um, a lot of people are very, very used to being watched and that's what one city trader told us and he said that he expects every single login to happen in a terminal. Now, the, the, the problem is that employers aren't exactly um, sticking by the rules. Um, they, they don't necessarily tell people, oh, by the way, we've installed this new app on your computer uh, to monitor your every move. It, it, is, it isn't that clear-cut because there's no law that says that you absolutely have to tell people or you're going to be at risk of being sued, for example. They can bring an employee tribunal against you. There, there is nothing like that in place. And the because the technology is advancing so quickly, it's really hard to know where people stand and where the lines should be drawn. Um, the, the interesting thing here is more about employee pressure. So as you mentioned, James, people are very vocally fighting back. So in February, when Office Life still existed, Barclays was forced to scrap new tracking software because of a staff backlash. Um, the tech, which was provided by this company called Sapience, recorded workers' activity and warned them if they were taking too many breaks or too long breaks, rather than being what they called in the zone. So th this is the kind of thing that we're seeing happening at the moment where people are going, wait a second, this is, this is super creepy. You're, you've crossed the line. We're, we're not going to go for it. And there's been sort of internal revolts. Same thing um, is, is been happening at PwC, which developed facial recognition software that can log employees' absences from their computer screens, including for bathroom breaks. Like, this is the whole, you spend 20 minutes in the bathroom on average in the UK um, during your office hours debate all over again. You, you, can't, you can't cross that line. And I think a lot of companies have kind of confused productivity for something um, like people being robots, basically. And so um, the, the, the accounting firm has insisted that the tech is there to meet compliance regulations as financial world adjusts the home life. And I think a lot of companies are in that same situation where they're going, OK, if, we, if, I have a, if I have a team of five people and I have to promote one of them, how do I 
seeing as they're all working from home, determine who's being productive. And so they're almost using that as an excuse to install all of these apps that end up monitoring how long you spend on a loo break. So if you end up being that one of five people who has a longer loo break, you might never get the promotion that you need simply because of, of the software. So it's, it's sort of a really odd confusing time I think for for a lot of businesses and a lot of employees but there is no end in sight as we look into the distance and have no set date to start back at work and companies are expecting maybe 30 40 percent of their employees to return in the coming months this kind of cat and mouse game is set to continue and I expect it to get more and more weird as we go along it's all part of this tug of war that's going on throughout this unwitting global experiment of everybody working remotely and as you say, Natasha, as companies are offered an opportunity to ask employees to come back to the office and some employees might not want to do that or at least might not want to do that full time, you've got to be able to make the argument that you are as productive at home as you are in the office. And for some employees, the only way to prove that will be to impinge on your privacy. So it's a really awkward thing. If you can't win this argument by saying, I'm working really hard, then for some companies, the only way to win the argument, so to speak, might be to be tracked in a really, really detailed way so that they can prove that they're still doing a good job. Yeah, it's absolutely really, it's a, it's a creepy kind of situation, but it's, it's borderline um, privacy nightmare uh, because... You're, you're in the situation where before you might have this tracking software on your computer at work, but you can log off and you can go home. Um, whereas now you've got that software and that computer in your living room, in your bedroom, and it's, it's there with you all of the time. And it, it does end up being a, a sort of complete antithesis to this whole idea of flexible working becoming a possibility and there being a better work-life balance because we're working at home if you spend the entire time looking at the software on your computer to make sure you've clocked the minutes it's it's really sad and a a great benefit of working from home and a reason that an awful lot of people have been brought round to the idea is that it offers that flexibility if you want to take a two-hour break in the middle of the day and you're still going to hand in the work that you need to do on time or, or, or do it at a later hour and submit it so it's still within deadline you can do that but if companies are using this kind of tracking software then that kind of removes the benefit of having that flexibility by working at home and makes people feel equally chained to their desks at home which necess- uh, it shouldn't necessarily be the case podcast at wired.co.uk um, you don't have to tell us who you work for but if your company has been using creepy tracking software we'd like to hear from you uh, do let us know podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we talked about on the show this week uh, I'm very excited for our third and final story it's about one of my favourite bits of technology QR codes Vicky they're back <laughs> yes I know it does sound a bit retro almost doesn't it um, but yeah they're printed on posters and signs pasted on pub walls and hotel lobbies, sellotaped to picnic tables in in beer gardens. We are witnessing the great QR code revival. Um, so as the hospitality industry begins tentatively to open up, bolstered particularly in the UK by the government's Eat Out to Help Out discount scheme, which Amit's talked about uh, on a previous episode of the podcast, restaurants and hotels are turning to technology to deliver a dine-in experience that's as touch-free as possible. Suddenly, a card menu that gets passed through the germy hands of one customer to the next doesn't seem so appealing. So previously dismissed as largely a marketing gimmick, at least in a consumer context, the QR code has really found its time to shine. 
So why QR codes? Weren't they a bit of a useless fad? I mean, to be fair to the QR code, they have had uses in, for example, warehousing and kind of behind the scenes type of stuff. So if you're new to the tech, QR code stands for quick response. It's, it basically looks like a, a barcode, but using squares instead of lines. So black and white grid uh, with a distinctive pattern and you kind of scan it using your phone or another device and then it will take you to a digital page so they have been used for like tracking products or shipments and things like that um but in marketing i think they have traditionally been seen as a bit of a gimmick about you know five ten years ago they were kind of everywhere and it was one of those things that a lot of companies thought oh we'd better get you know get in line with the latest tech let's just slap a qr code on stuff without really maybe thinking it through properly but it's sort of perfect for this situation, uh, new normal, because the whole point is they're touch-free. So the idea of a QR code is you're linking physical space with digital space. You scan the code in real life with your phone, and then you get taken to a website, a PDF, an image, whatever has been linked to that code, which makes it a perfect alternative to things like paper menus. Under COVID, the hospitality industry in particular is trying to reduce those touch points, the things that lots of people might touch um, and that could become a vector for coronavirus. And so suddenly they want an alternative to, you know, paper menus and that kind of thing. So one company I spoke to that helps businesses implement QR codes and runs an online QR code generator said that when the virus hit, they initially lost loads of custom because nothing was happening in the physical world. So no one was actually going out and scanning QR codes. But as lockdowns ease, they've seen a huge increase in use by hospitality. There's a 25x increase in use by restaurants and seven by hotels. And they've also seen many more people actually scan the QR codes created, meaning that customers are actually using these things now. I uh, remember when QR codes were everywhere the first time around. I remember getting business cards that didn't have people's names on it, but instead just had a QR code. I think I might still have them somewhere, but I think this, it, it sounds like we haven't gone as mad as the last time when they became quite popular. You mentioned menus, you mentioned hotels. What else are, are people using QR codes for at the moment? So I think menus is a really big one. It's a very obvious one, very easy one to implement. Uh, people are also using them to direct customers to online booking forms so that you can either order food directly at a restaurant from your table using an app uh, or check into a hotel room or something like that. And you don't have to actually go and meet a person. Um, and they could also become very useful in a health context for contact tracing. So keeping a record of who's been where in order to be able to track those who may have come into contact with the virus and actually the nhs test and trace services new app which amit mentioned at the top of the podcast uh, is currently entering trials will allow users to scan a qr code at venues they visit in order to keep a log of where they've been so currently venues on the isle of Wight, which is one of the places trialing the app are able to create a qr code to work with that test and trace system so we may actually see these even more embedded in the environment around us and used not only for our own convenience in you know ordering food and drink but also to be able to get get in touch with people if you maybe have been somewhere where an outbreak has been located to say hey you might want to quarantine and it's not just hospitality either some offices are also turning to the tech to help monitor their office space um, and see, you know, who's coming in, who's coming out. Um, 
because a lot of a lot of spaces have limited their capacity so you know the whole workforce can't come in at once and again it may help them if if your office has an instance of the virus they may want to know who has been in you know certain areas of the building that may have also come into contact with the person and one of the advantages of qr codes is that you can update the information that the code takes you to without changing the code so it, it, again if you use the menu example if you're a restaurant and your menu changes every week or even every night you can just change it you don't have to reprint a bunch of menus uh, so you know you're saving a lot uh, on printing costs and and the environment as well I guess like part of the reason people go to restaurants rather than getting takeaways and kind of go to you know pay pay extra for kind of upmarket hotels is that kind of service and that kind of level of sort of human interaction. If you're just kind of essentially opening a website and ordering stuff through an app, do you not is that not kind of fundamentally changing the experience, particularly for sort of higher end places? I think that's definitely a concern depending on the type of business that you run and also how it's implemented. Obviously, it is kind of extenuating circumstances right now. So I guess customers' expectations and desires have changed somewhat, whereas previously you may have really valued having physical things to hold and having close contact with waiters and that kind of thing. Now you you probably actually don't. So um, the customer desire has switched a little bit, I think. Um, one hotel owner I spoke to who runs boutique hotels in Cornwall and Wales, so quite up market places, uh, said that one of their main concerns is balancing out that kind of keeping distance and, and keeping safety uh, top of mind with maintaining the kind of human touch and not making things seem too clinical. If you're going somewhere for a nice meal, you don't want it to feel like you've just delivered something to your table. Um, so they've decided to use a QR code menu, but they still do have waiters actually taking the food order with proper distancing and everything like that. Uh, however, he did say that people seem to have adopted the technology really well. And as it becomes more commonplace and we see it more often, they will likely just get more and more used to it and perhaps even come to expect it as kind of a standard. And in some ways, having researched this topic a bit more, I feel like my views on QR codes may, may, have, may have changed a bit. Perhaps QR codes in the past were actually just a bit ahead of their time. Because aside from touch-free hospitality being a really strong use case, the technology has also moved on a bit now. More people have smartphones. Uh, and where in the past you might have had to download a specific app to read a QR code and it could all become a bit of a faff many more recent phone models will automatically scan them through the regular camera app. So it's it's much more frictionless, that favourite uh, tech term. And businesses are also learning to use them a bit better. So in the past, where they'd maybe hidden them away in a design or tucked them in a corner with no real explanation as to why you should scan the code or what you would get for doing so, they're now being put front and centre and it's very clear what the benefit for the customer is. That point about use case is really important. I think go back five, ten years, whenever QR codes started popping up on bus advert posters and in train carriages and stuff, it was always, you know, scan the ad to find out more about the product or there was never really a compelling reason. And as you said, there was so much friction in finding out the extra information that who would even bother. But when you're sitting down for a meal and all of a sudden the only way that you can see what's on the menu is to scan a QR code and it just works nice and easily, then all of a sudden we've got a really good use case for them. So there's quite a strong argument here that, will carry on in this way in some regards even once the pandemic is over right 
Yeah, I honestly think it's quite likely that this may be a sign of a, a long-term future. You know, we'll probably be trying to minimise close contact for a while. It's going to take a long time before, you know, people are happy that the coronavirus doesn't pose a great risk anymore. And during that time, people may well get habituated to this technology. And so it just becomes second nature that when you go into a restaurant, you scan a QR code to get the menu. And we're also likely to see other tech developed to address this issue. So lots of pubs and restaurants, hotels are making or resurrecting apps and things like that. Um, I spoke to one hotel chain, Citizen M, that's just revamped its app and allows for a whole bunch of touch-free experience uh, with things like check, uh, check-ins through the app. Um, you can turn your phone into your room key. You can use, your, use the app to adjust the temperature controls in your room. So you're only ever touching your own phone. You're not having to touch anything else. Uh, of course, getting a customer to download a whole app is maybe a bigger ask than just scanning a QR code. And you don't necessarily want to do that every time you go to a different restaurant or something like that. But if you regularly go to the same place or you travel a lot for work and you stay at the same hotel chain, then maybe it makes sense. What about you guys? Have you seen lots of QR codes everywhere? Have you been scanning them all around? Uh, I went to a, a popular British pub chain um, that has uh, an app that it developed in response to the pandemic. So basically not we- not Weatherspoons. Um, <laughs> and the only way that you can order is through this blasted app. So the Weatherspoons app, not to praise Weatherspoons, but it's pretty good. It's good customer experience. It's well developed. It's not too difficult to use. This one, I'm not going to name it because it's just mean. It's so, so, so bad. It's glitchy. It's full of bugs. It's really slow. It made my phone overheat. It's just garbage. So the idea of a QR code that you just scan, find the information that you want, and then say that to a human being or whatever system they've got in place is is way, way, way better than my phone being clogged up with a million different apps for random companies that I maybe only go to once or twice a year. I also can't help thinking that I don't know if this happens to anyone else, but the more I use my phone for different things, the more nervous I get because I often just run out of battery because I use it a lot. And you can imagine you're, you're staying at a hotel, let's say you're somewhere you know, abroad and you're using your phone not just as a phone but as your credit card and as you know, your room key and as your check-in and then suddenly it dies. Um, it's just a bit awkward, isn't it? I mean, I, sp- I, just, I don't know, I get a bit nervous about those kinds of things. So this is a thing that actually multiple people that I spoke to said is that, you know, they will always have an alternative for people who don't want to scan a QR code, maybe don't have a phone or have a dead phone or, you know, don't understand how QR codes work. Um, So everywhere I spoke to said, you know, we will still have some paper menus printed out. We're just not going to print enough for every single person to have one because Mm. now they're single use effectively if you don't want to be sharing that menu and potentially sharing germs. So I think you know, it is going to be important that everywhere does have an alternative and doesn't force you to use a specific technology to do it. And also that they do still have people around, right? So, you know, online check-in or check-in through an app or one of those digital terminals is fine when it works. But when it doesn't, you know, you definitely want there to be someone who you can can wave at and say, hey, help. (laughs) Podcast at wired.co.uk. What's your experience been of either eating out to help out or whatever the um, the alternative is in your country? Are you scanning QR codes like mad? Are you downloading rubbish apps left, right and centre so that you can have a drink or dinner with friends? Do get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Before we all run away and fling open the windows, I think it's about to rain in London, which would be a massive relief. There was a clap of thunder. Amit, it's looking quite dark where you are. Can you give us a live weather update? Uh, it's very grey. It's dark because I had the blinds closed, but it is also ah. very grey outside. 
Um, Promising signs. I've never, I've never wanted rain so much in my life. But before we do disappear off and, and, and dance for the rain gods, no emails this week, uh, which is just a terrible state of affairs. Matt Burgess and Matt Reynolds were so upset that they've, they've actually taken the week off to cry. So please do send us emails. We get lonely and sad. Podcast at wired.co.uk. But we did get a really, really nice tweet, which made up for it. Andy got in touch via Twitter to say that he just subscribed to our humble magazine to quote, possibly the first time I've gone from digital back to print thanks to the amazing his words not mine thanks to the amazing quality of the podcast continuing with his words super smart insights and discussions and can't get uh, can't wait to get stuck into it well there you go um if like andy you love the podcast so much and want to support what we do then why not subscribe to wired the magazine it's just like the podcast but with pretty pictures and less bad jokes Head to wired.co.uk forward slash magazine to subscribe where you can get three issues for the low, low price of £6. That's £2 per issue. Per issue. Um, and next week when I read out that promo, I'll do it better. Wired.co.uk forward slash magazine. Six quid for three issues of the magazine. £2 per issue. Can't ask for better value than that. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I'm going to go and dance in the rain. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you all again next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.